pray this morning that for those that feel like they're being tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of whatever this uh, life brings, Lord, if anxiety is just um, really not just knocking at the front door, but just trying to come in a window through the basement, um, just really trying to push into every area of their lives, Lord, we come against that this morning in Jesus' name. And we pray, Lord, that the certainty of Christ's work on the cross and his death, burial, and resurrection would be that anchor, would be that rock upon which they can stand this morning. Lord, I pray that the, by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would give each one of us faith to believe what your word says is true despite what we feel. Um, Lord, our feelings are amazing things at times, but they're also broken by the fall. And Lord, we ask that you would redeem them and help us to walk by faith. We love you so much, and we thank you for this time together. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Good morning. Good to see you guys. Got your Bibles. Grab them. Go to Romans chapter 15. Um, this is a wonderful passage of Scripture. I have been very captivated by it over the last couple of weeks. Uh, there's a lot in here. Probably won't get to all of it. I also tend to be a little bit long-winded after I have a week off, which I did last week, so I'll, uh, I'll read here and, and jump right in. This is Romans chapter 15, starting in verse 14. Please follow along. Paul says, I myself am satisfied, satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given by, to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But, as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Would you just pray with me one more time? Father, thanks for this morning. Please fill us with your spirit and open the eyes of our heart that we might see wonderful things from your word. Um, it is truly a blessing to be here. And uh, we ask that you would speak to us now in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, the longest flight that I've ever been on was several years ago when we fl flew to the Philippines for a missions trip, and we flew from Detroit to Tokyo, and then on the way back from Tokyo to Detroit, 13 hours. They're about they're 12 hours, I think, ahead of us. I know it was a 12-hour time difference. I think they're ahead. 12, 12 hours ahead of us. So on the way back, I was completely like my internal clock was just, I had no idea what time it was. And that was the longest 13 hours of my life. I was sitting in the middle seat. I had people on either side of me who apparently their internal clock was just fine because they were just sleeping, sleeping away. And I was just sitting there like so claustrophobic. And some of the greatest words that I've ever heard in my life was when the pilot came on the intercom and said, ladies and gentlemen, we are about to begin our initial descent into Detroit International Airport. I wanted to shoot up out of my seat and scream, Hallelujah. Um, anyway, I say all that because uh, 
We've spent the majority of 2023 being lifted high um, in the book of Romans to the heights of God's glorious grace that Paul has described for us in this letter. And while I hope you haven't felt as claustrophobic as I did on that flight from Tokyo to Detroit, um, we do have before us in many ways uh, what might be described as the initial descent back onto the ground, so to speak, as Paul begins to close out the letter to the book of Romans, and he transitions from what the message is, what the message consisted of, the message of the gospel that he preached, and he transitions back to something he did at the very beginning of this letter, and that is to who he is as a minister of that message. So a couple things to keep in mind in the context is that Paul did not plant the church in Rome. He'd never been to Rome. The majority of Christians in Rome had never met him, although there were a few acquaintances, acquaintances that he had there, as we'll find out later in the letter, um, that he'd known and had met in, in other places. Um, and the primary contextual reason for Paul writing this letter uh, is that it's a missionary support letter, and he wants to gain their support when he eventually comes to them, that he might be sent out by them onto Spain um, to continue to uh, carry out the mission of, of the gospel there. And so while this is the context of what's going on here in this passage, is that Paul's just kind of like wrapping up the letter, what we actually have, though, for our purposes this morning as we look at it, is we have this beautiful look, though, this beautiful look into the heart of the Apostle Paul. As it, what he really does is he, he takes us behind the curtain of his soul and he shows us what it is that made him tick. And the thing that if you just kind of look at this again for our purposes and again, you know, not just in the context of him writing the letter, but as we read it this morning, what you have here is the profile of a man who lived his life with a very clear sense of calling. A very clear sense of calling. And it's this idea of calling that I primarily want us to, to look at this morning and, and pull out some different things from it because calling is so important. If you find a person who has been called by Jesus Christ, who has heard the call of God on their life, watch out because there's no stopping them. And that's what we have here is this picture of a man who has been mightily called by God. Now, calling is something that I think every one of us longs for on some sort of level, even if maybe we've never thought about it, but I, I think that, that most of us have. I think there are two ditches on either side of the road when you begin to talk about calling. The ditch on the one side is that many of us just think that it doesn't really exist, that yeah, Christ may be called the Apostle Paul or you know, the Billy Grahams or, or some sort of you know, um, important missionary or pastor somewhere, but he doesn't just call the average Christian. That's not true. And so what happens is, is that we tend to just be like kind of like a, a group of cattle in the church. And that's a little bit offensive, but I'm including myself in it. We tend to be like a group of cattle in the church, just kind of mindlessly grazing our days away, you know, kind of in a little, in a little herd as we just kind of munch along, not really living for much else and just kind of waiting to get raptured out of here. The ditch on the other side of the road is that people tend to actually make an idol out of calling or out of purpose. I feel like I saw this a lot in the early 2000s when uh, Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, first came out. And it was, you know, a New York Times bestseller for a long time. And I really, you know, a lot of people like to knock that book. I really don't think there's anything wrong with that book. There was a lot of good stuff in it. But as sinful man tends to do, what happened was they, they, they took that book and, and this idea of purpose and of calling and of gifting, and they made it ultimate. 
And people kept running around trying to find what their calling was, what their, what their purpose was. And if they could just find their purpose or their calling, and they thought that it was something that they just discovered for themselves and not something that Christ actually called them to, which is implied in the name, um, they thought that it would bring some sort of you know, new level of fulfillment in their lives, and so they were constantly trying to chase this thing of finding out their specific calling or, or their specific purpose. But I think there's something between those two ditches on either side of the road that are instructive for us from this text this morning, and, and that would be this, is that what we see in the life of the Apostle Paul is that he lived a life of extraordinary power and impact. And I think that each one of us in Christ should want that. But he lived a life of extraordinary power and impact, not because he was consumed by the calling itself, but because he was consumed and captivated by the Christ who called him. That's it. If you had to just put that in really simple terms, dear friends, it's all about being captivated by Jesus Christ and his glory. And when you see him for who he is, what I want to argue this morning is that you will hear the call. You'll hear him. You'll hear him. When life becomes nothing but Jesus Christ. And the way I want to go about this this morning and kind of frame this, if you'll let me, is in talking about that idea of calling that, again, I don't think was just for the Apostle Paul, but each one of us is called to live a life consumed with the Christ who calls us to himself. But there's three characteristics, three characteristics from the text that I want to kind of pull out and talk about. And just to be clear, before we get into this, I'm saying that by characteristics, what I want to point out is, is that these things are results or, or effects of being captivated by Jesus Christ. So it's not that we do these things and then we'll be captivated. We're captivated and then these things are going to mark or characterize our life. And so as I, as I point them out this morning, the, the application for each one of us is that, is that we would be examining our lives and using the word, as James says, a, as a mirror to, to be a reflection, to look back on us, to, to, to see ourselves and saying, are, do these things characterize my life? And, and if they do, praise the Lord. But if, if they don't, then we need to come back again and we need to look at Jesus. And when we look at him, these things will, will, will become clear. So the first thing, very simple. Very simple, but the first characteristic of a life that is consumed with Jesus Christ is that you're going to have a deep love for the church. You're going to have a deep love for the church. Let me show it to you in the text. He starts off here in verse 14, and then I'll show you how he, he pieces this together with the rest of, that he's going to say about his calling. Verse 14, Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Now what he does in that brief sentence or two, in that one verse, is he gives an assessment of the local church. He gives an assessment of the local church. And here's the thing that I want to press on a little bit this morning, is that when I say that what should characterize our lives when we've been consumed with Jesus Christ is a deep care for the local church, is that we assess the things that we care about. We assess the things that we care about. Um, this past uh, weekend, a little bit Thursday morning, uh, Friday morning a little bit, I put up Christmas lights at the request of my wife on our house. 
Um, but I was into it this year. It was, it, was, it, was, it, was, uh, it was good, climbing around on the roof and, you know, trying not to fall again. Um, and it was, but, 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 it, but it was good. And I, but I came in, and as I, as I had been decorating outside, um, Hannah had been decorating a little bit inside, and she hung a wreath on our, like, sliding door that goes out to our back porch. And uh, I came in, and she asked my assessment of the wreath. And, and here's what I said. I don't care. <laughs> here's the thing. I didn't have an assessment because... I honestly didn't care. <laughs> um, we assess the things that we care about. So like, but, but take something that I do care about. Like, you know, I, I, I mean, I don't care that deeply, but just on a natural level, like I like basketball, and so I'll assess people's basketball performance. Uh, you know, I watch football, you know, um, Ohio State, golly. Um, anyway, lost again yesterday, but, but you know, you, you assess that because you care about it a little bit. But if you ask me, who's the greatest cricket player in the world? I have no idea and I don't care because I don't care. I have, I have no assessment. You get the point. We assess the things that we care about. And Paul here gives an assessment of the church because this is what Christ died to create. And he says here, it's actually, um, I wouldn't call it exhaustive, it's rather concise, but there are some good things pointing out here that we, this is how we should assess a church as well. Um, if we care about the church and understand that Christ died to create it and of which we are all a part. But he says three things. He says, you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct. So one at a time here quickly, he says, they're full of goodness. It's the idea of this moral virtue, a moral excellence. It's the idea of just being good-hearted. Like sometimes you talk to somebody, you're like, man, that dude, that's just a good dude. He's got, he's got a good heart. Like he means well. He's not perfect, but, um, but he, he, he means well. That's the idea here of, of uh, um, a full of goodness, is that their hearts were in the right place. They weren't just playing church. They weren't just showing up to be part of a club. Like they, they were um, imperfect, broken, sinful people saved by God's grace, but they were trying to do the right, the right thing. Secondly, he says they're filled with all knowledge. Filled with all knowledge. Now, again, this, um, this is all over the place in the New Testament. You've heard me talk about it before, but the Greek word for knowledge here is gnosko. It's never just this head knowledge. It's not just academic knowledge, although it does include that. It is a relational knowledge. It's the difference between knowing algebra, knowing geometry, and knowing a person. Okay? And so the idea here is that, yes, they had um, correct theology. Paul was adding to that in this letter that he wrote them. Paul says, but he, I'm convinced that you are filled with all knowledge. But the point here is that they had a theology that didn't just end in head knowledge. They had a, the, a theology that ended in doxology. They, they had doctrine that ended in devotion and in praise and in worship. And then thirdly, he says, not only are you full of all goodness and filled with all knowledge, but you're able to instruct one another. And this word for instruct, the Greek word appears eight different times in the New Testament. Only here is it translated in the English translations as instruct. Everywhere else, the word is translated either warn or admonish. So now here's the point. They have good hearts. All right, they, they have a good biblical understanding, and they understand it's not just about head knowledge, but it's about a relationship with Jesus. And then out of that, they're able to warn and to admonish one another. And this is an awesome thing. If I could just um, paraphrase that idea of instruct there, or warn, or admonish, as, as I've just said, the idea is they were able to be honest with each other. They were able to be honest with each other. 
when we trust each other's hearts and that we're all trying as imperfectly as we are, as imperfect as we are sometimes, to do the right thing, yet trusting each other's hearts that, we're, that, we're, that, that they're in the right place. And we understand that what we learn from the Bible isn't just about information and head knowledge, but it's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. We should be able to speak the truth to one another in love in such a way um, that we're able to be honest and help each other on this journey uh, going forward. And I just wonder this morning, the things that Paul assessed because he was informed about what a church should be, called as an apostle, are those the things that we assess when we look at a church? Or do we assess, you know, well, I like hymns versus modern worship music, or I like modern worship music more than hymns, or how's the kids program, or, you know, how long is the sermon? It should only be 25 minutes. Yeah, right. Um, it should only be, you know, 45, 45 minutes. It needs to go a little bit longer. You know, is it engaging? Does, you know, does he use practical application? He doesn't list about any, he doesn't list any of those things. His assessment of the local church is that they're full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and they're able to admonish and instruct one another. And again, this is important to Paul because Christ died to purchase it. In the Old Testament, especially a man, when he sought for himself a wife, he would pay a dowry or a bride price in order to purchase that woman from her family to himself. And the Bible tells us that Christ died for us to purchase us for himself, but we were not purchased, Peter says, with perishable things such as silver and gold, but we were purchased with the precious blood of Christ. And so we belong to him, and if we have been consumed with the glory of Christ in our lives, then we should care about his church, of which we are a part and of which he died to bring about. Secondly, here, the second thing that should characterize the life of somebody who's been consumed with Jesus Christ. Um, let, me, let me say it like this. We should desire to bring or offer something of value to Christ by being dependent upon Christ. Let me say that again, and then I'll unpack it if it doesn't make sense. We should desire to offer something of value to Christ by being dependent Upon Christ. This is the idea in verses 15 through 19. Let me begin to walk through them and, and break them down a little bit. The first part of that, that we desire to bring something of value to Christ. It was mentioned in the songs that we sing this morning. What, what can we bring? Yes, we can bring a sacrifice of praise, as we just did with, with our lips, um, especially if things are difficult, especially if things are hard in this season of your life right now, you have a unique opportunity that you don't have when things are going well to praise him despite the fact that things are hard right now. And many of you just did that as we stood and as, and as we sang. But Paul here has another idea in mind of what he wants to bring to the Lord. Look at verse 15. He says, On some points I have written to you very boldly, by way of reminder, because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. So right here, that little phrase at the end of verse 15, because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister, this is, the, uh, this is probably the most succinct place in this passage where I'm getting this idea of calling. 
Okay, this idea of calling. When he says here, because of the grace given to me, he's not just speaking of the grace that saved him, although obviously he's thankful for that too. I'm not saying that isn't true. But he's speaking specifically about the grace given to him to be a minister, the grace that called him, not just to salvation and to Jesus Christ, but to be a minister of the gospel to, to the Gentiles. And he says here, first of all, that he, he's written to them, though he doesn't know them, on some points very, very boldly. Very boldly. And then notice the flow of thought. The reason he's written boldly is because of this call of God on his life, because of the grace that's been given to him. And here's the thing I want us to get, is that your courage as a witness is always going to be proportionate to your sense of calling. The reason so many of us lack courage and boldness in our witness is because we live as if God hasn't called us to be witnesses. But the Bible testifies to this again and again and again. Listen, all of the Bible, it's about who God is, and then it's about who we are in light of who he is. And it's not about whether or not you deserve it. It's not about whether or not you have special gifts and abilities and talents or you know, who your parents are or how much money you have or, you know, or, or where you grew up. What it's about is that Jesus Christ saved you to him, and he also saved you to do some stuff for him. Now, you don't do it. In your own power, in your own strength, we're going to get to that in just a second. But he has called us to be witnesses. This is the very thing. This is like his marching orders to the church. The end of Matthew, the end of Luke, the beginning of Acts. He said, you will receive what? You will receive what when the Holy Spirit comes upon you? You will receive power. Thank you, one person. That was terrible. That was the worst you've ever done at crowd participation. Let me say, you will receive what? Power. You will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That's what he said. And the promise, and I don't have time to unpack all this, but in Acts chapter 2, Peter says, The promise is for you and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord God will call to himself. You come to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is in you. And he has given you the Holy Spirit to seal you, to affirm you, to let you know and have assurance that you are his child, but he has also given it to you for the sake of power to be his witnesses. And so many of us are still, it's like, we're praying about whether or not God wants us to be a witness. There's certain things, folks, you gotta stop praying about it and you gotta start doing it. You really do. I'm not saying don't pray for it, I'm not saying don't pray for you know, a sense of his presence and abiding in him, but, but you get my point. He has called us to be witnesses. And many times we lack courage because we've not gotten into this book to the place where we live with a sense of calling for each and every single one of us. For each and every single one of us. You know, think probably the clearest place that you see this in regards to courage or boldness and tied with our sense of calling is, is, is for parents in regards to our kids, right? So, Here's the thing. It's like I am very bold in telling my boys what I think about what's going on in their life. Now, as they get older, again, Ephraim just turned 18 a couple weeks ago. You know, he's becoming an adult. I'm trying to, you know, navigate this new season of having an adult child and, you know, what that looks like. Yet, for the most part, and especially when they're younger, I'm not asking their permission on whether or not they want me to tell them what I'm going to tell them. You know why? Because God has called me to parent them. You understand? 
So in the same way, it's like Paul and what he's doing here, the boldness that marked his life, he wasn't going around like asking permission to be bold. He had a sense of calling, and so he lived a courageous life. It's like, it's like we do the opposite. It's like we're going around like asking permission as to whether or not we can be bold witnesses for Christ. It's the exact opposite. Christ has called us to be courageous. And so we're courageous despite whether or not somebody gives us permission. Now, of course, you could go too far with this. And, you know, one of my good buddies early on when he first got, when he first got saved, loves the Lord deeply, still does to this day, good friend of mine. Um, but early on, you know, he, he told me that he's like, early on in his Christian life, he told me that he believed the Lord gave him the gift of rebuking people. And I was like, eh, maybe, uh, maybe not. Um, so obviously you could take this to an extreme, but I'm, what, I'm, what I'm saying is this, this, this sense of calling is of the utmost importance because it directly affects our courage and our boldness. Now, I didn't even get to the point I wanted to make there, but, but the first part of my little, of what I said is that we should desire to offer something of value to Christ. Look at, look at the rest of the verse here and what he says, verse 16. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul here, in verse 16, it's very rich Old Testament language, okay? And it's really important that we understand what he's talking about here if we are to live a life of worship and that brings something of value to Christ. He says, I'm called to be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. So Paul was called specifically, um, or primarily, I should say, to take the gospel to non-Jewish people. Now, did he witness to Jewish people? Absolutely. You read in the book of Acts, he's constantly going into the synagogue and witnessing to Jewish people. However, his primary emphasis was to take the gospel to Gentiles, to nations where Christ has not yet been named, as he's going to say later on in this, in this passage. Okay, But his, the imagery that he brings out here, he says, it is in the priestly service of of the gospel of God. So you've got priestly service, then the next phrase, so that the offering, circle offering, may be acceptable, that little word, and sanctified in the Holy Spirit. Here's the image that Paul is putting forward. In the Old Testament, you had the Levites, okay, the descendants of Aaron. They were the priests of the people of God. The whole book of Leviticus is primarily a book on how we are to bring offerings, but bring offerings to God via or through the Levites, the priests that served in the, in, in the temple or in the tabernacle area. And so there's, there's a whole list in the, in the book of Leviticus from, you know, from lepers when they have leprosy, if you have other sorts of diseases, um, women that were supposed to bring certain kind of offerings after childbirth, um, certain offerings when you sinned unintentionally, certain offerings when you sinned intentionally, and then you had all the feasts, you know, booths, um, the Feast of Booths, all the way up to the Day of Atonement, um, all, all these, different, these different things. Now, what happened, and this is a little bit of just a broad theology of, of the temple and some of the, of the Old Testament and how the two covenants come together, is in the New Testament, the moment that Jesus cried out, it is finished, and breathed his last breath, what happened to the curtain in the temple? 
Yeah, it was torn in two. And this is a, a, a picture that's symbolic because it was a curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And, that, and the holy place, the holy of holies, is where God's presence dwelt. And the moment Jesus, the perfect spotless lamb of God that all of the other lambs pointed to, the moment he was offered and gave up his life for the sins of the world, that curtain was ripped in two, signifying two things. One is that we now have access by faith to the presence of God. We didn't just have to be a priest, okay, because the perfect high priest had come and offered himself as the, as the pure and spotless lamb. Not only that we have access to the presence of God, but now that the presence of God is coming out. And so this is exactly what you have happened on the day of Pentecost when Jesus, risen from the dead, ascends to the Father on high, and you have a rushing mighty wind. Woof! That's what it sounded like. Um, just kidding. Wind and fire coming down from heaven, the Spirit of God being poured out, not just to the priests, not just in the temple, but to all God's people, but to all who had believed in the pure and spotless Lamb. And Paul here takes, takes this imagery of the Old Testament, now living in the New Covenant, and he says, I'm a priest, and he doesn't mean he's instituting some sort of New Testament priesthood in the same sense that it existed in the Old Testament. What he's saying is, the world is now my tabernacle. The world is now the temple. The offerings that we bring are no longer of lambs or bulls or, or, or turtle doves or you know, goats or, or, or whatever, but the offering that we bring is of these people that do not know Christ. We want to bring them to Jesus Christ and present them as a pure and spotless offering to him. And this is what he's saying. He say, when he says here, so that the offering of the Gentiles, he's not speaking just, although he would say this in other places, he's not just speaking of the Gentiles bringing an offering. He's saying, I'm the priest in this new temple of the world that the Spirit of God has now gone all out into, and I'm bringing people as offerings to God, which is exactly what he's in, he encouraged back in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that we offer, he encourages everybody, offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. But do you understand here that what Paul wants to do is he wants to bring something of value to Christ, and what he brings aren't just his little dead religious works. He says, I'm going to go with this message of the gospel, and I'm going to tell people that they can be reconciled to God, that they can know him. And he speaks very specifically this way of actually bringing people to God in a way that's, that, that's an act of worship. So very quickly, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says, For what is our hope or our joy or our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Philippians chapter 4, he says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. Now, here's the thing. You're like, well, yeah, but Paul was an apostle. I mean, he can live his life as an act of worship. No, no, no. Every single one of us is called to do this. You don't believe me? Let me give you some more Bible here. First Peter chapter 2. Listen to the language about how Jesus Christ died to make every single one of us priests and that every single one of us would live our lives seeing the world as the new temple that the Spirit of God dwells in and that we are to bring people to Jesus Christ as an offering to God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, he says, As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Paul's going to use almost that exact same language in just a few verses here in the text. A few verses later in 1 Peter chapter 2, 
Verse 9, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Revelation chapter 1 says this, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Here's the point, is that Paul saw his entire life's work as an act of worship, and so should you, and so should I. And Paul desired to bring something of value to Christ, but he did this, part two of this, by being dependent upon Christ. So Paul knows that, yes, he wants to bring something to Christ, but this is the way the Christian needs to talk, is though we want to bring something to Christ, we do not do it in our own strength, dear friends. We do it in total dependence upon him because he's the only one that can ultimately do the work. You see that at the end of verse 16, he says, having been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Again, he's not the one ultimately doing this. He's not the one ultimately saving people. The Holy Spirit is ultimately the one saving people through the proclamation, through the proclamation of the message that he'd been given. Verse 17, look at it. He says, in Christ Jesus then, or another way to say this would be therefore, therefore in Christ Jesus. Now now get this little phrase here. Get this little phrase. Now let's sit on this, this for just a second. He says, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Now, listen, he's, he's not boasting in a sinful way. Um, there are definitely qualifiers for it. He says, in Christ Jesus then. And then he goes on, verse 18, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. So again, we, we, seek to, we should seek to bring something of value to Christ, but we do it by being dependent upon Christ. But I want to just sit for a second, and I, I feel like so, on this, because I feel like so many Christians have this thing of like, well, I, I, can, never, I can never do anything. Well, I, I, don't even think, I don't even think about anything that you know, I want to do for Christ or bring to Christ because I'm just so humble and I'm very aware of my humility. I'm letting you know how humble I am because you know, I, just, I wouldn't want to ever boast about anything. That was sarcasm if you couldn't tell. But. Like, let, let's speak biblically. Let's speak biblically. Paul says, in Christ, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. I believe Paul... The Bible wants that for each and every one of us. He wants us to say that we have reason to be proud in Christ of our work for God. And followed up very quickly with, I'm not going to venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Yet, friends, this is exactly what he calls us to. Don't shrink back from it. Listen, real, real quick, Matthew 25 Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30, the parable of the talents. Don't have time to go in and unpack this entire thing, but there's three dudes. Dudes. um, They were servants of the master. Um, They were each given some talents. One was given five talents, another was given two talents, and another one of them was given one talent. Listen, just one talent was equal to 20 years of wages. So don't be like, why'd the one dude only get one? that dude was given 20 years worth of wages. In other words, it was a lot. And again, and again this, isn't, this isn't about money, although money could apply here. But they're given these things of incredible worth. And they're given it to them for the very purpose, because it's not theirs, of giving something back to the master when he returns. And the master expects them to be intentional in doing something with it. 
And you see this, and again, I'm just skipping around here in Matthew 25, but verse 24, finally, you know, he, the one who has five talents doubles it. The one who has two talents doubles it. Then verse 24 says, He also who had received one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed, so I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. Jesus says, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and I gather where I scattered no seed. You ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming, I should have received what was mine with some interest. And, and that idea of the bankers, it, it's the idea of like, you should have at least tried to do something. It wasn't all that much of a high risk, even if you didn't double it like the others, like just do something. And dear friends, please, please hear me this morning because I, I know that there's a way in what I'm about to say that like it, it could be taken wrong and, I, and I, I'm hoping you're with me in the flow of thought so far. But here's the thing, like dear friend, do, you do not have the right to live your Christian life in such a way that you take the grace that has been given you in just the knowledge of his word, the blessings that have been given to you in Christ Jesus, and just stick them in the sand and then wait till he comes back and make your way into heaven. He calls you to take what you've been given, whatever that is, your gifts, your abilities, your talents, your desires, the things you're good at, the things you're not good at, your weaknesses, but to take everything that you have and to do something with it for his glory. Again, with the caveat that like, well, I don't want to, I, I don't want to do it in my own strength, you know. Like so many people overthink this. No, you do it independent upon Christ, but you do it. Yeah, but God's sovereign if he really wants me to. Listen, yes, God is sovereign, but that doesn't mean we stick it in the sand. God is sovereign, therefore we act in hope that the sovereign God has called us to co-participate with him in this work that he's doing in the world to bring people into the kingdom. But because he's sovereign, we act with confidence and with hope. This is what Paul has in mind here, is that we do it, we do everything in dependence upon Christ. And again, I can't emphasize enough that we do it all in the power of the Holy Spirit, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. And let me do just one more thing, and then I'll move on here. But just don't, don't overthink this. Because like, I know Paul has this, you know, what we would, many of us think of like this, this massive call in his life to be the apostle to the Gentiles. That's a lot of people. Like everybody who's not Jewish, that was his mission field. But many of you guys know, many of you guys uh, are new, I should say, my grandma, who passed away about a year and a half ago. Um, my grandma, I'll argue this all day long, was a good example if you knew her. My grandma was called to be a grandma. She was called to be a grandma. In fact, she actually had many people who weren't her biological grandkids, they would just call her grandma. Because <laughs> she was called to be a grandma. And she, she took that calling and as much as she knew how, she wanted to offer her kids and her grandkids, her great-grandkids. She desired to offer them through prayer, through encouragement, through blessing them, to bring them as an offering to Christ, presentable to him. So who are, you, who are your Gentiles that God's called you? You're like, I, I don't know. I know. You don't know. 
I'm saying get focused on Jesus. Get focused on Christ. And these things will, they absolutely will become clear. So he goes on here, verse 18, to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, and by the power of the Spirit of God. There's a lot there. Paul was was an apostle. Um, (coughs) Again, the, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) excuse me, sorry. I need some water, but I'll I'll make it through here. We're almost at the end. Um, The power of signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God. Again, the the key word I would want to emphasize there is power. Is power. He said you will all receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And the same is true of your life in varying measure for the purpose for which God has called you to be witnesses. He says, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. If I would plan better for moments like this, I would have had a map up there on the screen, but I don't have one. But picture in your mind a screen of the Mediterranean, a map of the Mediterranean area from Jerusalem all the way over to like what would be considered just northern Greece or like modern day Bulgaria. Paul, this is where kind of the loop of his missionary circles where he went. And he says, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, which is a very interesting question because you're like, how could you say that? Like not every single person in that region has heard the gospel of Christ. How can you say that you fulfilled the ministry of the gospel in those regions? Here's why. He planted churches. He understood the power of the local church, and he would plant churches in those areas, and then those churches were responsible for discipling those regions. There's a lot to say on that, but we gotta, we got to move on. And then he, but he, but he, the thing I want to point out here is at the end of verse 19, he says, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And then very next breath, look at these two things and put them together. He says, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, beginning of verse 20, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ has not already been named. Two things. He felt a sense of fulfillment, yet he also felt a sense of ambition. Get out of your mind the American idea of retirement. Any amens on that one? I heard some laughter. I wasn't sure I heard any amens. Um, It's not biblical. I'm not saying you can't retire from your job and stop, stop working, but what I'm saying is if you've done that, then my, my dear older brother, my dear older sister, I want to tell you something. Now the work really begins. Because God has called you to make disciples. He's called you to take the grace that you've been given, whatever that is, and to invest it for his kingdom. You might have something to offer him upon his return. Because it's all his. And Here's what I want to say on this last point, and I'll try to get moving towards the end here, um, is that the ambitions of our life need to be formed by the word of God. The ambitions of our life need to be formed by the word of God. Here's where I'm getting that from. Yes, the word ambition there in verse 20. He says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But here's his Here's his little verse. When I say our ambitions need to be formed by the word of God, this is a quote from Isaiah chapter 52, and this is so beautiful, okay? It's a few little verses from the very last, it's the very last lines of Isaiah chapter 52. He says, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. How many of you guys have a life verse? Do you know what I mean by life verse? 
Do you know somebody who has a life verse? Again, I'm not saying you have to do this, but I would kind of argue here that at least in this season of Paul's life, I think this is Paul's life verse. The ambition of his life was formed by the word of God. And Paul, reading through the book of Isaiah, finds these verses. It says, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. And Paul took that, and he goes, that's my job. That's my, now, again, I don't think he just decided for himself. I think the Spirit of Christ took those verses as Paul was reading it, and they made it come alive to him. The idea of ambition here, very quickly, is just, it is a, it's something that we, will, that we willingly and joyfully assign value to. Paul assigned value willingly and joyfully to taking the message of the gospel to people who had never heard. This was his life's ambition. I got to begin to close here, but let me just unpack. And why, why don't you turn there? Turn to Isaiah 52, the very end of Isaiah 52. The very last verse of Isaiah 52. And again, though we've talked a lot about calling, um, it's not just about calling. Ultimately, it's about the Christ who calls us. Is the context in which Paul quotes this verse from, and I want you to see this. These verses here in verse 21, it, it's in the context of the suffering servant, probably one of the most famous passages in all of the Old Testament. It's been called the gospel of the Old Testament. And I just want to read it, starting back in Isaiah. The passage really begins back in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. He says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance, and this is speaking of Christ, was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond the children of mankind, speaking of how badly Jesus suffered. So shall he sprinkle many nations, the idea of with his blood, as an offering, making them pure. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. And then here's the verses Paul quotes. For that which has not been told them, they will see. And, that which, and those who have never heard, they will understand. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He, Jesus, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he, Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we were healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, 
he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand out of the anguish of his soul, out of the anguish of Christ's soul. He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death. He, Jesus, poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and he makes intercession for the transgressors transgressors. Do you see what I think Paul understood from this verse that he quotes in verse 21? Just that little snippet out of that context. That in those verses about going to the nations and those who have never heard, it's all in the context of Christ coming to die. This is what I meant when I said at the beginning is that it's not about just the calling itself, it's about the Christ who called us. Dear Christian, Jesus Christ died to bring you to himself and he died to bring the world to himself. He died to bring Israelis to himself. He died to bring members of Hamas to himself. He died to bring Russians to himself. He died to bring Ukrainians to himself. Paul read this and he said, I'm going. How will they understand? How will they hear? I'm going to go. December, for all, worship team, you got to come up and we'll make sure that I close. All right? um, December, this time of year, in the midst of all the whatever of the holidays, what we celebrate as Christians is not a day. It's, it's not about trees, reindeer, or Lord help us, a jolly old man in a red suit. It's about Advent. It's about the incarnation. It's about the fact that Jesus Christ put on flesh and came to earth to save a lost humanity. And I pray that we would see that. I pray that we would see that it's all about Christ. And as we do, that we would, that we would hear his call. Let me pray. Father, thanks for today. Um, thanks for your word. I, I pray, Lord, that you would please capture our hearts. with the reality of the cross and what you did to bring us to the Father. Lord, I pray that if anybody's here this morning and they're not sure if they can truly be forgiven because of the sinful life that they've led, I pray that they'd read those verses again in Isaiah 53. I pray that they believe that you died for them. 
and that your sacrifice was enough. And Lord, for those of us that know you as our Savior, God, I truly, um, I, you know, I mean this in the best possible way, Lord, humbly. I want to bring us, myself included, as a church before you. And I pray that we would truly be presented as an offering that's acceptable to you in the mission that you've given us to proclaim the gospel where you've placed us and to make disciples of all nations. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done for us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. You guys stand with me and we'll sing.